In this episode, Kelly Battles, acting CFO at Alpha Medical and previously CFO at Cora, Bracket Computing and Host Analytics, shares her insights into the evolving role of the CFO and how to think holistically about people, process and technology investments to create a highly effective and efficient finance function. Hi, I'm Rob and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class finance leaders to help you grow your company and yourself and face the challenges required of today's finance leaders. Kelly, thanks so much for doing this. It's great to have you on the show. It's nice to be here. Thank you for hosting me, Rob. I'm very much looking forward to this. Likewise, absolutely. So I wanted to start by referencing one of the things that you said in a recent presentation that you made at Sastra Annual, where you discussed that the ongoing challenge of the CFO is to evolve and to make the most of this role. So I would love to you know, hear more about what that means to you, how you define the role of the CFO today, and how, you, how do you foresee the CFO's role evolving over the next few years? So it's interesting. So I've been doing operational finance for probably about the last 20 years of my career. And a lot of things have changed during that time. I think two big drivers have, have for better or worse, helped to elevate the role of finance. One is the advent of SOX compliance, at least in the U.S., and that really elevated the importance of getting accounting right because companies that don't get this stuff right end up getting restatements, which hurts your stock price and which obviously then hurts the company. And so that's one driver. The second, I think, was the the 2008 crash. I think during that time, it really demonstrated the importance of using FP&A, financial planning and analysis, or the underlying data and analytics to navigate through tough times. And so I think those two things have really helped evolve the role or helped open up the opportunity for the role to be evolved. Now, I've had the great fortune of working at some amazing companies, but even in amazing companies, bad things happen, right? No matter how great the company, there are going to be strategic potholes in the road. And I'm a big believer that the way to get around those potholes is to bring to bear data and information to help and recommendations, associated recommendations to help executives, business leaders, team leaders to make better decisions. And finance sits at the crosshairs of that, right? Because we own a lot of the data and the information. And it's our job, I think, to help bring to bear the power of this data-driven decision-making to the company, to the executives and and beyond. And and I think an important part of this is you then diffuse some of the the elements that can slow down decision-making like emotions, politics, bureaucracy, et cetera, right? And so... So I think it's finance's job to do this. And so what that's meant over time is that if you do this right, the role of finance or the CFO can evolve from what it was maybe 25 years ago of just reporting history, reporting business results, to actually helping drive future results, better future results. So moving from the stereotypical bean counter or the kind of reactive purveyor of rigid processes and like too much data to actually help drive business results, to be a business partner, a true strategic business partner, proactive, bringing to bear real-time information and analytics, flexible processes, et cetera. So you're saying essentially moving from a, Moving from governance and making sure that the the the, the numbers are right, the, the 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 sort of the core elements of finance, accounting, cash management, reporting, forecasting, to decision support partners for the business. Right. I mean, you you need to do the governance part, but it's, it's broadening the portfolio, right? And I think about these things on 
dimensions, right? Like I'm a big believer that one of the keys to success and happiness is balance. And I often think about when I'm facing a problem, like what's the spectrum or what's the the dimension and where do I want to be or where do we want to be as a team, as executives, et cetera, on that, on that spectrum. And so that's one element of it. And, and if I could give you a couple of examples, like one is strategic versus operational, right? A good CFO needs to be a thinker, unafraid of complexity, really diving in as this business partner role, but also they need to be a doer, right? Can you run a process? Can you build a team? Are you practical? Are you ground in reality, right? And I think either extreme on some of these dimensions is bad. And I also think depending on your personality or the environment you're in, where you want to be on that spectrum changes, even for the same person, right? You, you may in one company need to be more strategic and another more operational, but finding your right place on that dimension, I think is important. I think there are a couple others that are very important. One I think a lot about is a good CFO, like a good CEO typically lives in the future, right? They're always thinking about what's around the corner. A bad CFO lives in the past. Like they're focused on just closing the books, right? And a good CFO can straddle that that balance, right? So you need to get the the past understood, but you need to do it efficiently. And so I'm a big believer in in de-bottlenecking the clothes, getting it very efficient, having a good, robust monthly reporting package or quarterly reporting package that that really shows what happened during that time. And then quickly pivoting into what does this mean for the future and helping drive better performance in the future. So that's the second dimension. A third one, and my team always loves this one, I'm a big believer in what I call finding the right balance between having the heart of a customer servant versus the mind of a police officer, right? We we are customer servants. We need to enable the business. We don't need to slow it down. I mean, sometimes you do need to slow it down, but typically I want to be an enabler that really sets good, efficient process and policy, but doesn't go too far, right? So that you really get what you need to have done, but you're, you're enabling the business, helping the business go faster. But then we also have to worry about, as you mentioned, the compliance part of the business, the governance part of the business. We need to keep people out of jail. We need to keep you know the company kind of the trains running on time. So that's a, a spectrum that I think about. And either extreme there is bad. Again, you don't want to be a pushover, but you also don't want to be all about compliance, right? And then finally, the other thing, the, the last dimension that we think a lot about, or I think a lot about as a, a finance leader, and my team thinks a lot about is frugality versus scalability. We have to be efficient in, with our investment. We are the stewards, right? We need to be, make sure that we're efficient with our resources, but we also don't want the company, and especially in a growth environment, to get behind the eight ball. So we need to invest for scale and growth as well. And so finding that right balance, again, it depends on the type of environment you're in, but finding that right balance is important. And so to me, those are the, that's kind of some of the ways that I think about being a good CFO and, and also helping build a good team and set of financial practices. So a lot of, a lot of really good aspects there to, to consider and to dig into. So let's, let's kind of wind back a little bit to the first, which was about striking the balance between operational and strategic. Where do you see most CFOs today? Do you see them striking that right balance between one side or the other, or do you see them leaning towards one and needing to rebalance? What's been your experience? I have seen both. I'm in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley with a lot of startups, and but but a lot of companies um, wanting to go public. And I think there's this myth around, we're getting ready to go public. We're going to go public in a year. We need to bring in someone who's done it three times before, or who's been a banker and understands capital markets. And then you hire that person, and then things don't go as fast as you want. 
which they rarely do, right? You hire that person. They're ready to take a company public to build that team, to build those processes, to get this in place. And then they get frustrated because they need to be more of a doer because they can't build a team because the company's not on track and they leave, right? I've also seen companies outgrow the operational CFO who can't think through how to scale these things, right? Who can't, who don't, doesn't have the experience or doesn't have the kind of the comfort zone around getting there, right? I think it had both, both extremes I've seen. And, and again, it's about, you know, if you're a CEO trying to find the right CFO, you need to consider what's the stage of the company? What's the business model of the company? What are the skills that that person needs to have? And then choose wisely and then make sure that they're scaling, and is it fair to say that if you're a CFO and thinking about this, it's important also for, for you as a C- CFO to think about the stage of the company that you're in, the maturity of the company and, and, and really what your CEO is, is looking to achieve in order to determine where you're at on the scale and what maybe needs to evolve? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And if let's say that, you know, for a CFO who's perhaps more operationally focused, what would you say to that person in terms of advice for them to move perhaps towards a more strategic balance? Yeah, I mean, I think zoom out, right? I mean, I think a lot of finance professionals are are perfectionist, data, mired in the data, very detail-oriented, which are important skills in finance. Like you have to have these, but I've had the development conversation directed at me, you know, 20 years ago. And I've also had the same development conversation around these are important skills, but if you want to grow to be a broader finance executive, a more senior finance executive, a CFO at a bigger company, you've got to zoom out and again, come back to this, like the big picture of this data-driven decision-making recommendations, not just handing over the numbers but actually understanding what the numbers mean for the future. What does the CEO need? What advice, what recommendations? I think that, you know, maybe more junior professors who professionals who are on more of the operational side focus more on providing the numbers. Whereas the more senior CFO digs through them and understands what do they mean and what do we need to do differently? What do we need to double down on that's going well? What do we need to change that's not going so well? Other conversations I have with CFOs when we talk about that similar topic is that it's about curiosity for the business and really having strong understanding and and depth of relationships with all areas of the business in order to be able to take the, the numbers and translate them into recommendations. Is that something you would agree with? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, this comes back to this cross-functional business partner. It's really, you know, I mean, I I think at the center of all this role of the CFO discussion is creating a data-driven culture. Right. Right. And and, and data-driven, cross-functional data-driven culture, understanding what are the key drivers of the business and then identify, you know, one of the first things I do when I join a company is go to each of the executives and say, hey, what are the key metrics you care about? And then I do a Venn diagram and typically the intersection of what I'm told are the key corporate drivers. And then you have the outskirts are the key functional metrics. And then the next step is figuring out, okay, can we track this information? Do we have it somewhere? And how, how do we keep it? Where do we put it? Where's the single source of truth? If there's not one, let's create one. And then how frequently do we want to see these numbers? Is it daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually? 
And then what's the right context to judge those numbers? Is it trends? Is it versus budget? Is it versus benchmarks? And then how do people want to consume this information? What's the right format that's tuned for consumption, not production? Like this is, again, coming back to the operational versus strategic. Operational is production, right? Just get it out there. Strategic is what's consumable, what will help, right? And so to me, this is very important building block, This that, that exercise. What are the metrics? How do we track them? Where are they? How do we judge them? And how then do we make them consumable so people can use them to make better decisions? And it's cross-functional, right? It's not just you know siloed, it's cross-functional because you want to be a cross-functional business partner that's helping the executives around the organization make better decisions, not just the CEO. I love that. I think that's such great practical advice in what you're saying in terms of that exercise to execute, to spend time with each of the cross-functional leaders, to build that picture of all the KPIs, and then to decipher which are the ones that really need to be bubbled up and provided on a, on a, on a regular basis. The, the other thing I'll say is, you know, I joined one, I won't name a name, but I joined one company that was one of the most data-driven companies probably on the planet. And so I didn't go through this exercise. And then Six months later, a year later, I really regretted it because the company was growing and changing and going through, even though there was a very good data infrastructure, going through that exercise, eventually we did go through it, really helped refresh the way the business was run, which was needed. And so even if you join as a CFO, a company that already has some of the stuff in place and you feel like it's pretty good, it still is a good exercise to go through because the refreshing process can open people's eyes. The analogy I have with is, is in terms of the data that's available, there's a ton of data available. And the, and the, the other thing that I've learned over the years is that it's, it's not about what we can measure, but it's what we should measure. Because some, sometimes there's data that's available, but it's not necessarily the data that we need to be looking at. And I don't know if that was your experience in that data-driven company, which I should imagine there was a lot of data available, but actually taking a step back and saying, okay, not what can we measure, but what do we need to measure? Let's start with that and then figure what's driving the business, right? That's the key question is what's truly driving the business. And that changes over time. And so you need to make sure it's a dynamic question, not a static one. Absolutely. So we've talked about the balance between operational and strategic, and we've talked about how how important data is to to drive that in relation also to not looking just in the past, but also looking into the future. And also the the, the notion of being a customer servant and, and, and a business partner versus a police officer. I, I guess there's got to be some element of police officer in there as well, making sure that the numbers are accurate and, and are compliant. But that certainly resonates, uh, that, that notion of being a servant and a, and a partner to the, to the business. So as you've experienced and, and led that evolution of the, of, of the finance function and the role of the CFO over time, how has that impacted team structure? Well, I mean, how do, how do you organize your, your, your team today in order to make sure that there is the right balance across those elements we've just been discussing? So if you come into a new CFO role, for me, the first questions I ask myself, you know, I focus on getting people right, getting process and policy right and then getting technology, right? And it's usually in that order. It's not always in that order, but that's kind of the way I think about it. And and so you kind of, I, I kind of lay out a, a, it's almost three-dimensional around what are the functions I'm leading? What are the things we need to accomplish over time? So there's kind of one layer is, one, one axis is what are the functions? So finance is one of them, but you know, a lot of CFOs run multiple functions now. What are the things that we need to comp- accomplish over the next year? 
And then what are the elements that need that we need to put in place to help accomplish those things, whether it's people, process or technology? And I go from there. And so from a people and team point of view, it really depends on the business model, the strengths that are already there what the needs of the business maintain. But, you know, generally I, I focus, it's very standard, right? You focus on kind of finance, well, accounting, kind of the transactions and compliance, the F, the finance, the FP&A, the investor relations, the tr- cash management and treasury, and then the other functions. And those vary for, depending on the, the scope of the CFO's role. But I've often run HR, sales operations or sales finance, IT, facilities, legal, business development. I mean, there's lots of different roles. And so, to me, it's just laying out this map, this dimensional, this three-dimensional map of like, what do we need to accomplish in these? What are the functions? What do we need to accomplish? And how are we going to do it? People process and technology. The one thing I'll say on people, several things I'll say. One, I am a, I'm a, an MBA. I kind of grew up through strategy and FP&A. I am not an accountant. And so one of the first hires that I make, if it's not already in place, is a really strong controller with a very strong CPA pedigree. Higher to your weaknesses, I guess is one, one point, right? Fill that, fill those gaps out, right? The other thing I'll say is this happened to me at my first private company finance executive role at Ironport, and I will never do it again. But one piece of advice is, you know, don't take being, we as a finance team or a finance leaders are the, you know, steward leaders, stewardship leaders of the company, right? And so what I find often happens, especially for junior finance leaders is they can sometimes take being a good soldier way too far and get behind the eight ball. And I did that at Ironport. Ironport was a rocket ship and and I, it was my first operational finance role. And I let our team get behind the eight ball. Now we fixed it. It was all fine. You know, the outcome was wonderful. It was a great experience and I was super learning, but I'll never do it again because fixing it came out of the head of me and my team. Right. And so really, inve- you know, you could, don't want to get ahead of your skis, but I feel like finance people, finance leaders need to be careful about not getting behind the eight ball and not being a blocker to progress and growth in the company because you can't keep up. What do you mean? In, I mean, I understand the, the saying in terms of not keeping up, but how did that manifest itself? What, what did you mean by like you got behind the eight ball? It's just, were you concentrating on on closing and the lagging indicators and not looking, not in, going back to the example of partnering and, and, and recommendations or was it something else? What exactly are you meaning by that that experience and how did you fix it? I underinvested in people and technology because we were growing so fast and I was trying to be frugal and I would go to my beloved boss, we're still friends, and I'd say, hey, I need this resource. He's like, oh, can't you make it work without this resource for another six months? And I was a good soldier. I said, yes, I will do that for this company and for you, right? And so what happened is, you know, we still closed the books and we still got the work done, but it was just, we were too manual. We were too slow. And we weren't getting the information in the hands of the leaders fast enough. Fortunately, we were still a rocket ship and still growing and and it didn't hurt the company. But catching up again was just very painful because we had to, it was like changing and filling, what's the expression when you're flying a jet and changing, filling it with fuel at the same time. We had to continue to keep up with the growth while we were catching up ourselves. And that was just incredibly painful. Yeah. And, and you were saying that that prevented you from getting the numbers to the business leaders as and when they needed that, 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 that was a struggle at that point. Um, yes, we were getting the information out too slowly, but we were also unable to get ahead of ourselves. So hire for the future or implement systems. And I'm a big believer in scalable 
system. So automating things, getting out of spreadsheets, single source of truth, linking systems, push button processes, right? Or products and financial output. And we just, we didn't have the time to invest in, in those things because we were behind the eight ball trying to just get the numbers out and, and do the basics, right? And so there's like kind of, I'm a big believer in goal setting. And, and one of the things that I believe in goals is they should not be part of your day-to-day job. They should be moving the ball forward. Like a goal should be for finance not to close the books. It should be to close the books, to take the close from 10 to six days. We didn't have time to take the close from 10 to six days because we were just closing the books. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that does. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you fix it? Like you said, you said you rectified it. So how did you make the leap forward to get it back into where you wanted it to be? I think eventually just self-advocating for more resources and right. I mean, it was not rocket science. It was going to my boss and saying, I need this. And him saying, can't you make do with it with this for another six months? And me saying, no, a flat note. I really need this, but, <laughs> but in a very constructive, professional data-driven way. Right. But it was just, you know, it was my first operational finance role. And so I didn't know what I didn't know on this at the time. And so, but you know, I learned the lesson and again, I haven't done it. This has not happened again. I learned my lesson. <laughs> And that's immensely valuable for, for, for people that are listening in, in, in terms of things to watch out for and, and, and mistakes that are, that are, that can be made and then, and then rectified. I mean, it's certainly something that, you know, any leader in any function of a fast growing business is, is faced with is, is making that trade-off and that right call between when to invest and when to say, no, I'm going to make do to conserve the cash and maybe put it to other uses. It's back to that balance between frugality and scalability. Right. I was way too on the frugality side. Right. And I needed to shift more towards the middle. You mentioned there that you're a big fan of systems and tools. Can you speak to some of your, you know, your favorite tools that you found have helped you to achieve that right balance across strategic and operational and getting the right data together? It's funny. So I'm on, I've, I've been the finance lead at five companies and I'm on several boards. And there's no one answer to, in my opinion, it, there's rarely one answer to these are the best tools because it, it varies based on your stage, your business model, and these things change very quickly. As an example, for an ERP system, which it's very hard to build a good ERP system. We were one of NetSuite's first customers in Ironport. So we learned this viscerally because there were a lot of bugs. There are a lot of bugs early on. I'm a huge fan of NetSuite, but there are a lot of bugs early on. But it's very hard to get to really build a robust, hardened ERP system. So I think in that case, the leaders are very stable because once you know, there's a lot of barriers to entry, right? So QuickBooks Online for early stage, Intact for the next, NetSuite, Oracle SAP, like that's kind of the spectrum. They're all good. Depends on your stage, right? No one answer depends on your stage. And then there are tools like, let's take an ETL tool, for example. When I was at Host Analytics, which is a ERM solution for, you know, FP&A tool, now called Planful. We use Boomi. Now I rarely hear the Boomi, right? It's, there's there's so many other tools out there. So I think that's an area where maybe there's fewer, there's more change, there's fewer barriers to entry, et cetera. And so for me, there's it's hard to say there's one great tool out there. But what I'll say is there are, I think it's very important as a finance leader to think of your infrastructure as a system, not a series of one-off solutions and make sure that system works together. And so it starts with an ERP system, right? You need to have a good consolidation 
tool, which sometimes that's in the ERP system, sometimes it's not. You need to have a very good reporting platform. And if you're lucky, that reporting platform will link, or well, if you're lucky, if you work hard and you make this work, it should tie into either a single source of truth for other operational metrics or to some of the key systems like a CRM solution. And there's a clear leader there, right? Salesforce. Like a tax planning solution, there's a clear leader there, Avalara. You know, all these different examples, HRM solution, like the clear leader workday. And and so you can create this, this reporting package that pulls together not just your gap information, but also your key operational drivers so that when you build your reporting packages, they're complete and they rely on the systematic view with a single source of data so that one, it's automated, it's efficient, it's not manual, it's not in spreadsheets, and two, it is cross-functional. It is not just siloed in gap P&Ls or gap, gap financials. Right. And so that that's kind of how I think systematically about it. But the tools that feed into it or into this platform, I think, change over time in many cases. I tend to be partial to the companies that I've worked well with or know well, you know, or worked in the past. Like Genesis, I'm on the board. They have an amazing experience as a service platform. I had very good experience with Planful. I haven't worked with it in a while. And NetSuite and Intech, I've worked a lot with. Avalara, I've worked a lot with. So that's really interesting. I mean, putting the names of the vendors to one side, as you say, they, they can evolve and change the architecture or, or the, or the system that you're, or the ecosystem that you're describing are the important elements. And I think some of those that you're mentioning is the ERP is at the foundation, but there needs to be a handshake and an integration with some of the other business systems. So the CRM is, is another core component of that, which then enables you perhaps through the intermediary of a data warehouse or a data lake to create a single source of truth, which exposes metrics that are cross-functional, that are that are complete, as you as you describe. So, if I'm hearing what you're saying, it's less about the names of the vendors. It's more about how do you create an architecture which is going to deliver a complete set of reporting data that is uh, across the entire business, not just the core finance metrics. Yes, and I, I focused on reporting as an example, but there's also an uh, you know example of with Salesforce and your ER, or with the CRM and ERP system of automating quote to cash, for instance. I've been part of building systems that went both ways where you could bring kind of the, the quote into invoice automatically, right? But you could also push back collections data to sales reps so that you don't have manual emails coming from the collections department to sales reps to get help. But the sales reps have a dashboard where they can see which of their customers are not paying their bills, right? That's another example. So it's not just about reporting. It's also about workflows, right? And making sure that those are integrated across systems. And again, it's it's for accuracy. It's for reducing costs. It's for getting manual processes out of the system, which by the way, also leads to happier employees because nobody likes those manual processes and the, and the grunt work or the, the unfulfilling work that typically they involve. So for anyone who's listening that's saying, I have a ton of manual processes, I, I don't really have 
an integrated architecture of systems that deliver what you what you've just been describing what advice would you give to get started i mean obviously i would argue that i, I would i would suggest that the starting point is what data do you want to report on what are the kpis what are the what are the financials but how, how would you progress along that journey to move to eliminate some of these manual processes and get to this point that we were just describing just a a little anecdote. So I worked at McKinsey the summer between my two years of business school and about three years after business school. And I was staffed on a mill study in rural Georgia, which I was not excited to be part of it, but it ended up being my absolute favorite. I'm from Alabama, so I was happy to be in the South, but I was not happy to be on it, to be transported to this mill in the middle of nowhere and be in charge of optimizing throughput with the client team. But it ended up being my absolute favorite project for many reasons, one of which is that it was we it was measurable. It was very rare when I was at McKinsey to actually have a project where you could have measurable results. But I also had a visceral learning during this this project because again, I was the team lead from McKinsey on optimizing throughput in the mill. And we were making progress daily on this. So super fun. But my visceral learning was that you can de-bottleneck anything. Right. You don't have to be in a hardcore manufacturing environment. And so to think about like setting, you know, improving efficiency and workflows and setting up systems, et cetera. Like I treat it like a paper mill, right? A pulp and paper mill, where you lay out what you're trying to accomplish, the process and the timing, and you figure out where the bottlenecks are. You solve for those bottlenecks, you learn from that you measure, you make sure it's working, and then you lather and repeat. And so I think the first step is just to understand what's going on in your finance department, if we're focused on, on that part of the business, lay it all out, figure out where your problems are, and then come back to people, process, and technology. How do you solve it, right? Do you solve it with people? Do you solve it with process? Do you solve it with technology? Now, we're focused on technology, and I think when it comes to technology, you've got to start with the basics and so and then build upon the basics. But the But the mantra should be automate, single source of truth, link data. Like to me, those are the most important things. Like I'm I'm writing that down. Order automate, single source of truth. And link data. And linked data. Amazing. Right. So in my opinion, those have been my guiding principles. Is automate where you can, identify where the data is and make sure it's accurate and there's one single source, and then make sure all that data like is linked into the right systems. hundred percent. You also mentioned making happy people. Obviously an, an, an added benefit of this is that people enjoy more the work that they're doing because they're not stuck with, with so many manual processes. So how do you think about people and, and culture as it relates to a highly effective and efficient finance function? What role does, does culture play as, as part of that? How, how, do, you, how do you address the, the, the people part of this? Yeah. So I'm a people person. I'm a huge extrovert. I've run HR at five different companies. And and I don't know how typical that is really for CFOs to love running HR, but I do love running HR. You're actually the second CFO I've I've interviewed or who's been been a guest in this podcast who has said the moment my career took a whole new meaning and opened up to me was as a former CFO. She was a former CFO of BMW and then was asked to lead the HR function. And then for her, the world just opened up. So that's interesting. I think it's relatively rare, but uh, not, not the only one who has had a similar experience to what you're, you're describing. Yeah, no, I really, I really enjoy it. And I, I, I think a lot about culture. I care a lot about people and culture. And so, and here's, here's the way I think about it. So 
I think about culture in two levels. There's culture with a capital C and culture with a small C. And culture with a capital C, you got to start with culture with a capital C. And this applies, I think, to personal life. It applies to the executive team and it applies to the finance team or other functional teams, right? And so for me, culture with a big C is what's your mission, your purpose, what's your vision, like what's your ideal end state? What are the values that guide how you act? And what are the goals that guide what you do? Like, I think those things are very important for culture with a big C. And it's really like, what are you trying to accomplish and how are you going to do it? And then there's culture with a little C that are the supporting systems that help make culture with a big C work. And so some examples, strong HR practices around performance reviews, one-on-ones. I'm a big believer in solid one-to-ones. I'd be happy to talk about that for, you know, I think it's super important. Good compensation practices. That's one example. Strong leadership practices, transparent and content-rich communications, delegation and empowerment, data-driven decision-making, which we've talked a lot about. And then there's things, the fun stuff, which I think a lot of people say go straight to culture means parties. To me, that's the last step to culture. You have to get all the big C stuff right and all the supporting processes right. But I do think that there's these parties, fun office decor, fun events, and those are important too. And so I try to apply these things to my personal life. I try to help executive teams, CEOs, heads of HR make make the corporate culture work. And then I I definitely apply these things to my teams as well. And I think... Typically, you know, the finance, if I'm running a finance team, the culture needs to be consistent with the company, but it doesn't always have to be the same, right? Some of these things can vary depending on the needs of the team versus the needs of the company. But that's how I think about it. And I, I spent a lot of time on this stuff. I think it's very important. It's perhaps easy to say, well, yeah, okay, but, you know, I've got to get back to the numbers because the hard metrics, and maybe there's more of more comfort in, in in that area. And therefore there might be those that are thinking, well, maybe, yes, I'll get to that, but it, how important can it be? So, so you say it's really important, but what impact that have you seen it make when you've, you've spent that much time on big C, little C and, and implementing these practices? What, what difference do you see that that's really tangibly made? So probably the, one of the strongest cultures in a good way that I've ever been part of, it was Ironport, which is a email security company that was ended up being bought by Cisco. It was a very, it was a great, a great company, a great culture, great product, great outcome, et cetera. And the culture was amazing. And I think one of the reasons the culture was amazing is that we had an amazing head of HR, who's now the head of HR at Asana. Her name's Anna Bender. She's a superstar. And she was in lockstep with the CEO on this stuff. And then the execs were all in lockstep on this. And I think there are obvious things that this helps like retention because it's very costly to hire people and then lose them, especially in the Bay area, especially good engineers. But there are also non-obvious things like this was a competitive weapon for us. Like I think one of the reasons Ironport won was because we outcultured everybody else. Wow. Yeah. I've heard the expression culture eat strategy for breakfast. Yeah. I mean, I haven't heard that, but I, <laughs> I, I totally, I believe it. That's what a CEO of my previous company I was at, uh, he, he's a massive believer at Box. He was a massive believer in, in culture, still, obviously still is. And that was one of his things that he would say. He's like, you know, yes, of course, you've got to get strategy right. right. But culture, 
can eat strategy for breakfast. Yeah. I mean, if you have a great strategy and your, your people don't stay right. because they can't stand the culture, then the company's not going to be successful. Right. So it's really interesting. You say you, you out-cultured your, your competitors. I mean, we outdid a few few things. I think we won on a few dimensions, but that was one of the most material ones, in my opinion, because we were able to hire great people. And this is when Google was like just get, getting really aggressive with hiring and they were putting billboards up and asking people to solve problems. And if you solve the problem, you got an immediate job. Like it was very, it was, you know, very hard to hire good engineers then too, but we were able to hire and retain great people who really love the company and the mission. I mean, and, you know, we're just missionaries for the company. And that just, that, that, that created, it's very hard to describe good cultures. I think it's very easy to describe bad cultures, but it's very hard to describe why good companies, good cultures work, but this just organically worked and people loved being there and it was a weapon. Yeah. And, 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 and there's a pride that, that people have in, in, in working for a company when that sort of culture exists. And, uh, or, you know, I think it also helps folks to take on the sort of mantra of, of responsibility for it being their own company. They treat it as if it's their own company and it's and therefore the way that they consider the decisions that they, they make, the money that is, is spent takes on more of a personal attachment and therefore decision making can be a lot stronger and, and, and therefore beneficial to the, to the company in that way. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, as we talked about, no matter how, how great a company there were t- days at Ironport I thought we were not going to survive and having that good culture helped people power through it and be- and believe when you need it the most. Right. So clearly culture, huge, huge impact, huge positive impact. And, and there are lots of elements that, as you described from the high level, big C's to the smaller C's. And you mentioned also one-to-ones and so forth. So therefore that's a key element to creating a great culture. So how do you, Think about one-to-ones. How do you how do you create great one-to-ones with your teams? So first of all, I'm a big believer in regular one-to-ones, not just with your manager and your team, but also skip levels. And here's why. So one, I think if they're done well, you know, I'm not a meeting person. And I think a lot of people assume, oh, all these one-to-ones, just meetings, 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 overhead, overhead, overhead. And I think that if you if you structure one-to-ones correctly and you use them well. One, you can get actual work done because sometimes they do turn into working sessions. Two, you build an environment of mutual accountability because you, if you're doing it right, in my opinion, you're talking about goals, you're setting goals, you're talking about progress against goals, and you're also giving mutual feedback, not just one way, but mutual feedback. You know, I always ask, I try to often ask for feedback in these meetings. Three, especially with skip levels, I find you stay in touch with issues throughout the org and at all levels. One of the things I worry most about as an exec is losing touch with where the rubber meets the road. And I think using skip levels can really help you stay in touch. And three, leadership is all about building trusting and inspirational relationships. And so I think investing the time in these relationships makes sense. I typically have a very consistent and structured approach to my one-on-ones. And so here's how I approach them. First of all, I do think, while I have a structured approach, I often, I do think that one-on-ones in, should be driven by the employee, not the manager. I think the manager should give guidelines about what we want to talk about, but I think it's really the employee's job to help make the one-to-one valuable. It's the employee's time and meeting. Exactly. So I think that's the guiding principle. 
I pr- try to provide structure on what are things that we want to talk about. And so obviously firefighting the week's, the week's issues at hand is going to happen. I try to make sure that one-on-ones are not dominated by that. Because if you don't manage to that, you're going to lose sight of the longer term discussions often. I want to hear about the obstacles the people I'm talking to are facing and how I can help or how others can help. Because I think one of my jobs as a leader is to break down those obstacles as fast as possible so that people can run, move fast, right? I always want to talk about setting goals at the beginning of the quarter and then progress against goals. Often that will lead to the firefighting discussions or the obstacles discussions. <laughs> I like to get ahead on things that are coming longer term so that we're not just talking about today, but we're we're always cognizant of what's coming around the corner. So to me, that's the core of a one-on-one that you t- try to do regularly. And then maybe less regularly, but still regular, I want to talk about mutual feedback. I don't want these things to always be feedback because feedback can be heavy, but but I want to make sure that there's time and space. So if I meet somebody weekly, maybe monthly, we talk about feedback. And again, I ask for feedback. I don't just give it. And then I also, not just about the employee, but also how, or, or me, but how's the company doing? Like, what could we be doing better? I always ask about how the person's team is doing if they're a manager. So it's not just about that person, but it's also how their team is feeling, how they're, you know, to get, again, to keep in touch with the different levels. And then make sure that there's space and room for the employee to talk about their personal life. Like I always try to end with like, where's your gas tank? Like, you know, empty to full, where are you? Or are you happy? Are things okay? Just to make sure that there's, that's not just all work and no play, but that we're also getting to know each other on a human level and not just on a, a work level. And so those are the types of things. And then not every, I don't, you can't cram all that into one like to one, one-to-one, right? And so again, I try to focus on what do we need to talk about weekly? And then maybe what do we want to talk about monthly? And what do we want to talk about quarterly? And I guess I missed the most important quarterly one, which is employee development plans. So it's not just about what are you doing for the company, but also what's the company doing for you? Career advice, mentorship, stuff like that. Training, development. Exactly. And you also mentioned introducing skip levels. So introducing skip levels, if you're a leader and you're, you know, that's relatively straightforward. I mean, people will take the the initiative to go, okay, I'll go make sure that I'm speaking to uh, my N minus twos or, or however you describe it. But some folks might be a little hesitant to introduce skip levels if they've got to go up. So if it's beneficial for me to introduce a skip level going up and I've, it's on me to set up a meeting with my CEO, as, as an example, is it something that you just put it in the diary, make it happen? Yes, absolutely. It's literally as simple as that. <laughs> yeah, it's truth and calendaring. Like if, you want to, if it's important, put it in your calendar and protect it, right? It gets unwieldy if, you're, if you have a large organization. Like I actually had a CEO tell me, you have too many one-to-ones on your calendar. It's too hard to get on your calendar. And I had to like, I had to back it up. And so, you know, you have to calibrate. But like what I tried to do when I had an organization where I could do it is, you know, I meet with, I want to meet with my manager and my employee, my direct employees weekly, right? And then sometimes there are exceptions, but the skip levels may be monthly or quarterly, depending on how senior they are, how, right? They don't have to be as frequent. A weekly event. Exactly. And so I kind of managed it that way. Instead of getting rid of them completely, I made the skip levels less frequent 
and then just told them, Hey, this just, I need to because of my time. But if something comes up and we don't have a meeting for a month, put something on my calendar. It makes a ton of sense. The other thing that I heard actually um, over the weekend was that when you're just talking there about, you were told that you have too many one-to-ones to a degree that depends on how many direct reports you have. And so do you agree with the idea that, you know, in order to have effective one-to-ones that also puts a limiter or a range in terms of how many direct reports you have in order for those one-to-ones to be effective? So for example, Google recommends that you should have, you know, somewhere between five and seven direct reports and no more than that to enable those, that sort of effective management practices to occur. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more than one-to-ones that drive the span of control, but I, I do believe that Different leaders can handle different spans of control too. But I feel like once you get past seven or eight, it gets hard to manage. If you want, and now some people don't, some people don't value management, don't spend as much time on it and feel like load me up. Or some people just are superhuman and can handle it. But for me, like once you get past seven or eight, I feel like it's hard for me to be the manager or the leader I want to be to that team, those te- you know, to my team and those, those sub teams. Right. And so with that meeting cadence, how, how does that, when you think about your rhythm on a weekly basis, what, what does that look like? How do you, how do you structure your week and, and the rhythm that you, you implement to manage your team and, and, and your, your directs? For me, there's like no, there's nothing kind of typical about a week or a month for me. Um, so if I had to think about how I spend my time or how I structure my week, I kind of think it on two dimensions. One, there's like the pie chart of what I'm actually doing. And then there's the themes around what I'm thinking about while I'm doing it. And so from what I'm doing, it's really simple. It's planning, whether it's my time, the team or the company, like what's around the corner, what do we need to be doing, et cetera. And that's where all the the stuff we were talking about, like mission values, values, goals, accountability, all that stuff comes in there. There's relationship building, which, you know, meetings or communications, et cetera. But it's, you know, hopefully it's not just overhead again, but it's leading, it's decision making, it's problem solving, it's learning. You know, it's not just meetings, right? In groups and, and one-to-ones. And then there's work time. Like, I'm, I, you know, I'm still a doer. I still, at, at heart, I'm a doer. And I like to save time to think, contribute, work, problem solve, check, right? So it's really those three buckets, like planning, relationship building, and work time. And then the things that I'm tending to think about as I'm spending that time, I think I kind of divide it into domain, management, and leadership, right? And so from a domain point of view, again, back to this, th- this, this concept of CEOs living in the future and wanting to be a good balanced CFO, that tends, and maybe this is just my comfort zone, but in what I love, but like that tends to put me m- more in the FP&A world more of the time, right? Because I'm, I really want to kind of the data and the analytics, learning from the past, figuring out what to do differently in the future, I tend to spend a lot of time. I want to spend a lot of time on that in, in while I'm planning. Yeah, decision decision support recommendations. Yes, this whole data driven culture and being supporting that and making sure that I'm a good business partner, right? And then from a management point of view, again, spending a lot of time on getting to know the organization, communi- you know, kind of um, the one on ones and and making sure that I'm staying in touch, right? What's what, and, and and really helping the te- my team 
do the work, right? And then from a leadership point of view, I mean, I think the the main, in my opinion, if I had to really oversimplify leadership, it comes down to setting direction and culture, motivating others to follow, which depends on great communications, and then spending in goals and accountability. Like to me, that's it's as simple as that. And so I tend to spend a lot of time thinking about those three things while I'm, you know, planning, relationship building and working. Does that make sense? Yeah, hundred percent. And so, so from a super, super practical perspective, do you sit down at the beginning of the week and do you, do you look at your calendar and then literally spend some time blocking it out so you can attend to all of these different aspects in order to give yourself time to think? I mean, I tend to do it more on a rolling basis. But I do do I do a, a, a beginning of the week and I try to be disciplined to do a beginning of the week and end of the week check. But I don't always it doesn't always happen, you know, because we're all busy, et cetera. But but, you know, I, I tend to think of it more on a rolling basis. But I'm a big believer in truth and calendaring. Like for me, you know, life is short. Like my mother died at 39 when I was 17. Like I learned a visceral lesson at that point in my life. Like life is short and you need to make every day count. And one of the ways that I do that is I, you got to figure out what's important to you. For me, it's family, friends, work, faith, and me. Those five things, like that's what I care about. And then ruthlessly prioritize, you know, what's important, what's most important today. And what am I, so that's what I'm going to spend my time on. And then practice truth and calendaring. If it's important, take make time for it. If you can't make time for it organically, block it and protect that block. And then step back and monitor how have I been spending my time and does it match my priorities? I love that because it's so conscious. You know exactly what it is that is priority, but also that you're consciously putting it into the diary and then looking back to see whether it's actually happening. Because as you say, it's so it's so easy to blast past weeks and even months without even realizing it because we're so busy, because there's so many things on our plate. But you're super conscious about it. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not trying to pretend I always get it right, but I think half the battle is just being disciplined about it. And then when you don't get it right, adjust. And then also be forgiving if you don't get it right. Like, you know, because I feel like it's kind of this balance between being intentional, but also being flexible or forgiving, right? Because you're not going to always get it right. It could be a week you get wrong. It could be a year you get wrong, right? Like, but the important thing is, okay, I got it wrong. I'm going to fix it. Yeah. Be at least kind to yourself. Yeah. That was number five. Exactly. Self-care, right? Family, friends, work, faith, and self-care. self-care. <laughs> and some that self-care often people forget, but I try not to. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Kelly, it's, it's been fantastic talking to you. I mean, I could ask you a ton of questions, but we're, we're kind of out of, ta- out of time. So um, thank you so much. Is there is there anywhere that people can go to learn more about you, um, learn more about you? Well, I was the CFO of a beloved company that I still love to this day, Cora. And I've written a lot of answers on Cora about some of this stuff. And so that would be a good place to start. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Again, Kelly, thank you for sharing your stories, your advice, your wisdom. It's been immensely insightful and I've really enjoyed speaking with you. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Rob. It was fun to be here today. and I appreciate your time. One last thing. If you have a question you'd like to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm to submit it. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense with custom budgets and track transactions in real time, connect accounting software to automate reporting, then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.